Hey, it's Spearsy with some breaking news. Brad and I are invited back to the 2023 voyage of the 80s cruise. Listen later in the podcast for the full lineup of artists that will be on the ship sailing March 3rd through 10th, 2023 out of L.A. In the meantime, remember, you can get $200 cabin credit if you use the promo code STUCK when booking. It only applies to first-time guests, but don't forget the promo code at the time that you book your cabin. General booking begins on March 22nd. Don't wait too long. The boat's already 60% sold out. Hope to see you there in 2023. Now on with the show. Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the advice. Carpe diem. Seize the day. The comebacks. Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. <laughs> and the technology. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears. And Brad and Arakeen. And today we chat with the writer and director of the new sci-fi documentary, In Search of Tomorrow. It's our interview with David Weiner. A beginning is a very delicate time. Stuck in the 80s is a listener-supported podcast. For as little as two bucks a month, become a patron of the podcast and get exclusive content and invitations to monthly Zoom happy hours. To learn about more perks or to join, go to patreon.com slash stuckinthe80spodcast. Hey, gang. So Brad and I are home from the 80s cruise and all rested up. Well, as, as rested up as you can get in three days. And we'll talk more about the cruise later in the show. But first, we wanted to give you this amazing conversation with David Weiner. He is a longtime entertainment journalist and the director of a new movie about sci-fi movies in the 80s called In Search of Tomorrow. This is a crazy good film, you guys. It covers more than 50 films. And it goes year by year, topic by topic. He slices it. He dices it. He throws it into a beautiful chef salad that you're going to just dig on. And the interviews alone are just going to make your head explode. Uh, people like Clancy Brown, Sean Young, John Carpenter, Billy D. Williams, Ivan Reitman. The mm. list goes on and on. And just, so just when you think that you've kind of seen it all, somebody else pops on the screen. You're like, oh, my God. And, and it's just I think he's got more than 70 people doing interviews in there it's just it's it's amazing it's yeah. just chalk chalk a block chalk a block full of talk Ooh, i like that kind of like our podcast uh this film is viewer supported which means it was made with uh contributions from fans on a kickstarter site and it's only for sale until march 27th so if you want to watch this you need to get on this and go to 80s sci-fi doc.com i'm going to spell this out for you eight zero s S-C-I-F-I-D-O-C.com to find out how you can help and get a copy of the movie. Brad, you're going to want a copy of uh, this movie alone just for our discussion about the original Dune movie. Oh, this guy's my hero. By the way, if you're a fan of horror movies in the 80s, uh, David's also done a two-part documentary on those called In Search of Darkness, and we'll, we'll touch on that during our conversation. Um, but for now, sit back and enjoy this conversation with director... David Weiner. Mm-hmm. 
David Weiner, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Very excited about your project, uh, In Search of Tomorrow. How, how long has it been in the works? How long did it take you to put it together? Uh, this is a movie that is not only long, it's a, it's a documentary about 80s sci-fi cinema, and it's a five-hour film that runs from 1980 to 1989, structured with movies in each year and then larger context chapters in, in between. It takes a long time to do it, but I can usually turn one of these around in uh, a little over a year, not including the development. Uh, prior to this, I did uh, two movies, In Search of Darkness, part one and part two, that are all about 80s horror movies. Um, but this had a little bit of a hiccup. Some pandemic or something kind of inconvenienced us, and it just took a little bit longer because we had to be uh, navigate the challenges like many other people did in these last two years. Was there anything else that In Search of Darkness kind of taught you doing those two movies that helped helped you do a better job on In Search of Tomorrow? Sure. It's, it, it really helped me perfect this structure. Uh, these are crowdfunded projects uh, from a company called Creator VC that's based out of the UK. And uh, Robin Block, our executive editor, it's his brainchild. He started with a film called In Search of the Last Action Heroes. And while he was doing that, he said, you know what? Now that we're covering 80s action films, I think 80s horror would be the next logical step. And as we were putting together In Search of Darkness, he's like, hmm, sci-fi, that's the next step after that. Um, I, uh, I really wanted to kind of perfect the, uh, the length of this film. I keep on going back to that because uh, the structure really demands it. The structure, uh, in order to accommodate so many films, because this was such a spectacular decade with so much amazing, influential uh, phenomenal filmmaking that uh, you really need to get everything it's due. And believe it or not, in a four or a five hour film, you can't cover everything. So uh, when I go into an individual film segment or I talk about a larger context chapter, whether it's the, the heroes, the villains, the, the practical effects, the, uh, the, the political and sociological climate that, that influenced and affected these films and conversely, you know, uh, the zeitgeist, the thing is, uh, there's a lot of ground to cover. We also have, uh, in this film, In Search of Tomorrow, we've got 70 plus speakers, uh, talented interviews from uh, icons of the era who are either in front of the camera or behind the camera, you know, the craftspersons and uh, experts as well as the stars. And so what did I learn? I learned really how to, how to uh, perfect the the timing to make this fly by and uh, have a nice real balance of you know a little groundwork of what a movie is about talking about the themes talking about some of the behind the scenes uh, uh, challenges and and triumphs that they experienced and uh, the biggest thing I've learned is how to not be disappointed with myself because I'm a completist that I can't fit it all in and ideally we'll just have to continue more with more. Uh, chapters of this film because there's just so much ground to cover. That is the challenge when you when you try to cover a topic like sci-fi in the 80s. You you can sit there and spend five hours talking about it. And then you realize there's another 50 movies that you know kind of slip through the cracks that oh man I should have talked more about crawl or oh, gosh. <laughs> exactly. It, it all starts with the best of intentions, but what you what you quickly realize is that uh there is no way to do it. Uh otherwise uh you just you really can't 
find out much about these things without just saying, oh, here's this, here's that, here's this. But what I ultimately do is there's sort of two little conceits in this film. One is when you go from movie to movie, there's a, a wall of posters, uh, you know, kind of floating in space. And we, we zero in on a particular poster. And that's the film that we'll cover. We'll show the trailer and then one of the people in the film will likely be there talking about it. Uh, it's a shared conversation with a variety of folks. So, you know, if you're Alex Winter and you're in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, he's talking about Ghostbusters. He's talking about Mad Max, Road Warrior. Uh, it's just a big conversation and, and an expression of love for film. But the stuff that doesn't make it in, we at least acknowledge that it exists. You see it on the posters. We'll make a, a passing reference to something and you'll see a clip from something, perhaps. Uh, and hopefully one day you get around to covering one of those films as well. Let's talk about how we individually experienced the 80s. I'm, I'm 54 years old, so I, my high school years and all my college years were all encapsulated during that decade. How, how about you? You and I, I think we're born in, were you born in 68? 67. Okay, yeah, I was born in 68, so I'm 54. But you're so, older than me. <laughs> by a year. At this point, I think it's, it's close enough we can call it a tie. Exactly. Um, so we kind of grew up during that sort of golden age of the 80s. Do you, do you remember the first sci-fi movies that you saw in the theaters growing up? I mean, probably was before 80s. Yeah, yeah, it's pre-80s. Um, so the 80s for me, like I, uh, I I grew up in, I was born in 68, so I was a 70s kid and I was an 80s teen. And so um, growing up, I was a total monster kid. Uh, and I loved Star Trek and I loved Planet of the Apes and I loved, you know, Logan's Run and I loved the incredible Lou Ferrigno was the Incredible Hulk. Um, and I was a huge Batman nut, you know, Batman 66 watching reruns as a kid. Um, so I cut my teeth on that. Uh, and, and I was like that, that meme where the guy is walking with his girlfriend and another girl goes by and then he, he, well, you know, the girl, his girlfriend is Star Trek and that other girl who catches his eye, that's Star Wars. <laughs> and Star Wars comes along and uh, I know I speak for pretty much a whole generation when I say my world was changed when I saw that film. I walked into that theater just saying, I want to see this movie. It looks cool. I walked out a changed human being uh, wanting to know more about filmmaking, wanting to make people feel as exhilarated as I did. You know, walking out of that, wanting to see it 500 times more and wanting to read about it uh, and find out more, whether it was, you know, reading in Starlog or listening to the album or, you know, uh, the John Williams soundtrack or the story of Star Wars or, you know, playing with the action figures, you know, from from dawn to dusk. Yeah, I, I so, remember I, yeah. I remember asking my mom for the action figures and I'd always ask for more stormtroopers. She's like, you already have a stormtrooper. I'm like, you don't get it. You don't get it. Well, I remember when the, the Kenner action figures came out. Now, of course, the people who hear these stories from us know the story, and the people who don't might not realize that you know, Star Wars came out in, in, in May, May 25th, 1977. That Christmas, there were no Star Wars action figures. There were some other Star Wars toys that were repurposed you know, with the Star Wars sticker slapped on it to make it look like it was a Star Wars toy or a puzzle or coloring book or board game. But the action figures, we had to wait until the following spring. And I remember the first day that those came out, uh, word on the street was the action figures were there. Literally, that's how it worked. A friend of mine said, I got them. They're there. Get them while they're still hot, while they're still there. And I ran with my friend with my jar of Marie Callender's 
dressing, empty, full of quarters, dimes, nickels, and pennies. And I think I had about $10 of my life savings in there, hoping that I wasn't going to drop it on the ground and have it splatter <laughs> everywhere. And I, I bought four of the action figures. And I bought two good guys and two bad guys. So I got Darth Vader and a Stormtrooper. And I got uh, Han Solo and Chewbacca. And that to me was like the ideal two against two uh, that I could start with. So, yeah, exactly. Um, I want to talk about the thing that really just blew my mind with, with your documentary. And that's the interviews. You have people that pop up on the screen and every time that, you know, Clancy Brown or Lance Guest or Sam Jones, John Carpenter, Sean Young, uh, even Gene Simmons of Kiss, which, <laughs> right? which, which for like two seconds, I'm like, why is Gene Simmons of Kiss on here? And then I remembered, aha, run away. Right. So. It wasn't for it wasn't for Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. <laughs> I had to I had to have a a nod to that in my film. Of course you did. Um, what which of those interviews or, or or were the biggest gets or thrills for you? Uh, well, so many for so I don't like to play favorites because uh, everyone has a really great story to tell. But I would be lying if I did not say having Walter Koenig check off from Star Trek mm. in my backyard uh, talking about. Star Trek and the movies and his his role in sci-fi was not just a pinch me moment. And I say my backyard because when we were filming this and COVID was uh, at its height, and then we were all able to sort of get out as long as we weren't sharing a contained room together. I decided I you know we need to go someplace where there's lots of great airflow and we could socially distance and, and be safe. Uh, and you know, there are no, some of these folks are not spring chickens anymore and it doesn't matter what age you are, but I wanted to make sure this was a very safe shoot shoot. And I figured that the most, uh, controlled environment I could have was literally my backyard. (laughs) And so I had a parade of, uh, everyone from Walter Koenig, you know, Chekhov there, uh, you know, Sam J. Jones, you know, Flash Gordon, um, John Dykstra, you know, uh, ILM and, and special effects legend, uh, Adrian Barbeau, Will Wheaton, uh, Alex Winter. It just, you know, it was it was very, very cool. But I'd say of all the people that uh, are in this film, uh, I think the one that's most bittersweet uh, is Ivan Reitman. Oh, and yeah. uh, I, I couldn't believe Ivan said, yeah, sure. I'd love to be in your film. I just, that was a pinch me moment there. Yeah. Um, and he was so gracious and invited me up to his home in, in Montecito and in, in, the, in the house that uh, Ghostbusters built. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, he gave a real heartfelt interview talking about more than just Ghostbusters. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, or don't remember that he, executive produced uh, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone in 3D and, and Heavy Metal, uh, the movie, the animated uh, anthology film. And, uh, you know, he has a lot of great insights about the genre. And, um, uh, you know, of course, we all know him for, you know, animals and, uh, sorry, Animal House and, and uh, uh, you know, Stripes and, and so many other amazing films, Meatballs. <laughs> You know, so it was very, very, very cool to talk to Ivan, and uh, he was in he was in great health. So uh, and this was just last June, so this was bittersweet to have him in our film. But it's uh, you know, while it's a tremendous loss, this makes our film that much more of a time capsule of the era. You you've had a really long career, uh, like I have as a journalist. Is it 
is it weird for you too when when someone you've interviewed uh, passes away? I mean, I, it hasn't happened to me all that often, but when Meatloaf passed away recently, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. one of the more notable interviews I, I'd had that year. And I just think, oh man, there's just something that really kind of stabs you the wrong way. Well, you meet these folks and you quickly realize that they're just human beings like we are. Uh, they're not gods. Uh, their work is godlike. But uh, a lot of these people are very personable and friendly and, and happy to talk about, you know, the things that made other people happy with their careers and their you know, output. So, but yeah, I've had, uh, I've had the, you know, good fortune to speak to a bunch of folks before they passed. Um, I spoke to with Robert, I, I sat down with Robert Forster uh, to talk about the black hole. Uh, and I got to sit with him at his favorite cafe at his favorite table. Uh, and I did not know that he had, he was sick, you know, and had brain cancer wow. and, uh, he died and he, he, he invited me after we sat down, I, I wrote a piece for the Hollywood reporter for heat vision for their sort of geek blog. And, uh, he invited me to, uh, he's like, Oh, you know, it was a real pleasure talking to you. I'm doing a live reading of airplane. I'm playing the captain and, a, you know, a couple other characters, uh, I'd love for you to come and join me. And uh, he, I sat down with his family and watched him perform. It was just so wonderful and hilarious. And not just a few weeks later did I find out that he passed. And uh, something was different about that, you know, because he was so gracious. And I think the most important thing about Robert Forster was, uh, first of all, he reminded me a bit of my dad. And, and he, he had this, this charm about him that he made you, you know, I knew I was just some guy that was in his orbit, but he made anyone in his orbit feel like that they were at the center of, of attention whenever they were with him. And so it, it is quite an experience to talk to someone and connect with someone and then lose them not too long later. Sure, of course. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the subgenres of sci-fi in the 80s, because I, I think I think you make this point in the, in the documentary, and it feels like it to me that there are several that stand out. And there, there's the dystopian future ones like Road Warrior and Escape from New York. You have mm-hmm. Cold War themes like uh, The Day After, which, by the way, I thought was real when I saw it on TV. I didn't realize it was a movie. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, it was not a, that was not a fun night. Uh, War Games. And then you have what, what I think is always my personal favorite, the... <clears throat> time travel flicks like back to the future star trek four bill and ted mm-hmm. and, and then even and even an odd little category of uh comedy sci-fi with galaxina ice pirates or earth, earth girls are easy mm-hmm. am i missing any other obvious subgenres? uh maybe maybe the action subgenre, you know aliens and predator and running man Oh, good point. Um, you know, where, you know, arguably that's a certain type of subgenre, you know, where it's sort of a hybrid of genres uh, in there. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, that's the, the flexibility and the malleability of, of sci-fi is what really attracts me to the genre as a whole, because uh, so many things, you know, you mentioned like, um, you know, the what if, like the what if scenario of like war games or Miracle Mile. Um, you know, you also meant, you know, weird, weird science is, is a good one in terms of comedy. Sure. Um, you know, but those all touch on the cold war. Uh, but it's interesting that you could like include that where it's like, you know, the folly of, of man and technology that's going to be our undoing is just as much uh, a sci-fi cautionary tale 
uh, as something in space, you know, Battle Beyond the Stars or, you know, E.T. coming, you know, to your backyard. So um, there, there's a million different subgenres. There's a million different approaches to this. There's the big budget. There's the independent. There's the, there's the, uh, the commercially uh, successful blockbusters. And there, then there's the, the major stumbles, you know, like Howard the Duck. You know, or or you have for every ET, you've got Mac and me. You know, and you've got um, <laughs> you know for every for every Mad Max, you've got Battle Truck and Steel Dawn. You know, so the thing is, there's there's plenty uh, of fodder for all of this stuff in terms of what really captures the imagination of people, and then the other filmmakers who run and do ripoffs of of the same. Um, but going back to like ET and and Mac and me. Um, those movies are very important to all of us for, for reasons that we might not recognize, for example, you know, uh, Mac and me is a video store staple. You know, that's the one that you didn't see in the theater. You discovered it on the video store shelf and your parents likely got that when they tried to get ET and it was already out and there was Mac and me and it looked like an ET kind of movie. So they got it. And I think a lot of people saw Mac and me before they even saw ET and so, you know, you might recognize a, a little difference in quality uh, in terms of these films, but what's more important is not to, you know, shame a film for not being so good or, or popular or being a box office failure, but recognizing that it was important to a lot of people for an, a, a perfect escape that night with the, with the family, you know, or, you know, just co coming at a time when you were, you were getting interested in these types of stories and you just wanted as many movies to fill that void as possible. So these movies in In Search of Tomorrow is just as much about the experience of who you were with and, and, and how you were watching these and, and where you were and when it was uh, as much as the film itself. Has your taste, your personal taste in sci-fi movies changed over the decades? I mean, something, a genre that you might've been more into 40 years ago, perhaps, like maybe you were into more of the action uh, sci-fi movies. Has that evolved into a different uh, taste in movies today? Uh, I, I'd like to say it has, but it hasn't. Um, I, I really respond to a, a story that's versatile and connects me with to the characters. And it could be as ridiculous or as serious as it wants to be. Uh, I'll connect with it as long as it could successfully allow me to successfully suspend my disbelief and, and, and dive into the world and enjoy it for what it is. Um, if anything, my appreciation has changed for some of these films in the 80s, like Mac and Me and our uh, Howard the Duck, because I know the stories behind these. And, you know, whenever you make a film, it's a Herculean effort. It's, you know, just to get a film written, produced, uh, post-production completed and released in some way, shape or form is a monumental feat. And uh, then it's out there for the wolves to either, you know, uh, destroy or everyone to uh, put on a pedestal as one of the best things they've ever seen. Uh, doesn't take away all the work and effort and craftsmanship and and, and just and imagination and, and determination and grit to get these things done. So I'll return to a film that I completely dismissed, like Howard the Duck, back when it came out. And I, I appreciate it now for what the effort was and how... It's definitely not the sum of its parts, you know, it's definitely trying to be a family film, but it's also being trying to be a bit of a raunchy adult film as well. Uh, and when I say adult film, you know, for mature audiences, but not <laughs> super adult, but you know, the duck does want to do it with, you know, 
Leah Thompson. So, but but that being said, it's like a it's like a, again this time capsule concept. It's like a perfect encapsulation of what an 80s movie is from the music to the big hair to the fashions to the ILM special effects to George Lucas's name on it whether he should have had his name on it or not it's it's quite a ride and it's an interesting car wreck to uh, appreciate speaking of car wrecks I have to and I'm not I'm not trying to label this next movie a car wreck, but I, I'd be curious what's your take over this. Right. See, I see. I've I've, I've turned it into a, a stigma now. Everything <laughs> has to be appreciated, whether you liked it or not. That doesn't no. take it away, whether you <laughs> like the film or not. The the original Dune. Oh yeah. What was your take on that then I, and now and then the remake? Obviously, I I have always championed Dune uh, because I was really into my my Dune. Personal Dune story is that I knew of the book, but I never read it because I thought it was pretty impenetrable until the movie came out. And I watched the movie in the theater pitched to me as, you know, Star Wars, but on a sand planet. I'm like, well, Star Wars had a sand planet, Tatooine. This is going to be awesome. And I remember watching it and I did not think it was terrible. And I did not find it very confusing, Um, although they did hand me a glossary before I watched the film. <laughs> and so I do remember literally, you know, sitting in my seat 15 minutes with my popcorn 15 minutes before the movie started, the di- the lights were dim and I had this two-sided glossary sheet. I'm like, Ben Gezeret, Mwadid, what the heck? I feel like I have to study for the, it's like that dream you have where you're sitting in your underwear and you have to take the SATs. Yeah. That's how I felt right before Dune started. <laughs> but uh, I loved it. I appreciated it for all its, uh, imperfections uh and i just thought it was really 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 well done i just thought that it was imaginative and and spectacular and epic uh i ended up going to the book because i loved the movie so much Uh, it's now one of my favorite books of all time um and it has endured lots of ridicule and because people either didn't understand the dune story or they were a huge Dune fan, and they they had they said you know, the, when I say you know a fan of the book, so they just said, well, this is just you know this is not the book. This is just uh, an abridged version with new things, and it's wrong. Um, Dune is a very 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 tough book to adapt, and the movie we just got I think is absolutely spectacular, and I, I love it. I think it's great, but I still can't not help myself but compare it to David Lynch's film. Yeah, And this Dune that just came out is part one of a part two film. So you're still going to get like a six hour Dune, which is even longer than what David Lynch got to make his film or to present his film. So, yeah, I have a thing or two to say about Dune. But but, but it was very cool because I had Sean Young, uh, Sean Young, you know, who's also in Blade Runner and she's also in Dune talking about it and getting her take on it. uh, I think it was really fun. We also include some of her. Uh, home movies that she took on the set of Dune and included it in uh, in In Search of Tomorrow. And I, I just think it's wonderful. I'm just hearing her talk about Sting and how he felt wearing that that space age thong. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the price of admission right there for me. Yeah. No, I, I, I strangely probably watch the original Dune, I don't know, maybe once every other month now. And it gets better every time I see it. And I, I don't notice the imperfections. I, I sort of kind of chuckled to myself during the extremely long introduction where 
think she's done. And then she fades away. Nope, she's coming back again. <laughs> exactly. Oh, in case you were completely confused, let me just add one more thing to your <laughs> yeah. brain before we even start the film, Princess Erlon. But um, there are certain films that are in my film that we talk about, uh, like Saturn 3, like Dune, where I have always been obsessed with elements of the film uh, where I, I want to get my fix. And I keep on coming back to it. And every time I come back to it, I want the film to be better. And I know that it won't be. And I'm, I'm still setting myself up for disappointment. You know, maybe that's the, the definition of insanity is, you know, going back to the same thing over and over, expecting it to be different. But these movies have, have very unique and interesting uh, visions to offer, even if they're not perfect. And I think Dune is, I really don't slam Dune for, Dune for anything. When I say imperfect, I just think there's only so much they could include in, in the running time. And maybe the effects are a little bit dated, but uh, I still think the, the production design is amazing. The still suits are amazing. I'm happy with the cast. Uh, it's an ambitious project. Um, I don't know what the problem is. Why do people hate Dune so much, the original one? I don't know. I really don't. Uh, <laughs> I just, I think people, the others there, there, my, my concept, my, my perception is that there are people who did not like it because they loved the book and they said the, the movie was, is just destined to be inferior. It, it, it tanked at the box office and it's this perfect storm of, well, no, it's just a bad film. And so other people who don't understand Dune pick up on the negativity of that and it just swells into this Dune is, is a flop. And that's a stigma that connects itself to a film for decades, especially when the director believes that and, and, and distances himself, you know, to make it that much more of a mystique uh, about the film. And so, yeah, I think, you know, without any of the baggage, you can just sit and watch it, especially if you appreciate that story. It's a lot to digest with all the, the new vocabulary, but it's a, you know, it's Game of Thrones. You know, I, I think without talking, you know, for seven hours about Dune, it's, you know, I think Game of Thrones helped a whole generation come to appreciate the new movie because you can have long form storytelling, epic storytelling, multiple characters, all different situations, uh, words and vocabulary and definitions that you can't really quite figure out but you get the gist of the story uh and you could do a deep dive you get that all with game of thrones and then dune comes along and you're like okay now i think i'm ready for this especially now the effects are super cool yeah no and conversely you have something like blade runner which has always been probably my favorite sci-fi movie of the 80s and you wait 40 years and now we get a sequel do you mm -hmm. I mean how do you feel about the idea of a remake versus a sequel i mean it seems like in the movie in the documentary, the, the interviewees definitely have a, a, a point of view on that. And that's that they prefer a sequel because it maintains the integrity of the original piece. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was the eighties was not the, the decade of the reboot. Um, you know, arguably you could say that's not entirely true because you had filmmakers like Joe Dante, you know, David Cronenberg, uh, John Carpenter, uh, either paying homage or remaking the films of their youth in, in the 50s. You know, so you got John, John Carpenter remaking The Thing, or, you know, you have Cronenberg remaking The Fly. You know, The Blob was remade, that kind of stuff. And I think all those remakes were, were uh, if not superior, 
uh, uh, great and classics in their own right that have stood the test of time and have become, you know, huge classics in, in the, in the time that's passed. But these days there's lots of reboots and, and remakes and so on and so forth. We all know that that's just sort of a fact of life. Um, I like to try and be optimistic and think about, you know, the thing was great. So the thing could be great. If the fly could be great, a remake of X, Y, or Z can be great as well. I will, I will give it the benefit of the doubt, but for, you know, for the most part, these things kind of fail or they can't live up to the original or they try to be too much exactly like the original and, uh, suffer in the, in the comparison. So, um, you know, in the 80s, for the most part, everyone was, was about con- sequels, you know, and continuing the story, you know, more more Star Trek, in, you know, installments, more Star Wars installments, you know, um, Aliens, you know, was the ultimate sequel. And then that, of course, continued on um, in different forms, you know, to uh, law of diminishing returns. But at the end of the day, um, if, if you had an imaginative filmmaker and you have the resources and the budget to do it great. Um, you know, I, I, I did not expect great things from Blade Runner 2049, but I was, uh, I was sadly, I, I, I was, I was happily wrong, you know, and sorely mistaken that that was not going to be good. And so, uh, and of course that is, you know, Denis Villeneuve, who also did the Dune remake. So listen, I'll, I'll, I'll give him a pass. If he wants to remake, you know, uh, Austin Powers, I'll watch it because of you know, <laughs> So, so how can people get a copy of your movie? What's the best way to, to watch uh, In Search of Tomorrow? Uh, in Search of Tomorrow, if you want to get it, you got to get it between now and March 27th. You go to 80sscifidoc.com, 80s, 80sscifidoc.com. We're a small indie company. We do things a little differently. Uh, the reason why it's a five-hour film rather than sort of a series or anything like that or theatrical is because it's a crowdfunded film. Uh, and we get to keep creative control. And it's pretty unique the way it's structured in that you don't have to sit for five hours if you don't want to, but it does fly by pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, we, w- what we do is we, we manufacture in batches. And so we do it for a limited time where not only do you get the film on either Blu-ray or DVD with like a slipcase and you get exclusive uh, three exclusive uh, posters that are really cool. You get, you know, stickers, you get a digital copy, soundtrack, all sorts of cool stuff. You can check it out on 80sscifidoc.com. But I think one of the coolest things is that you get to have your name in the credits and, and you get to be proud, uh, a proud backer of a film that, uh, uh, fan, you know, for fans made by fans. Uh, and I think that's what makes us a unique project. It is very unique, and we were really, really blessed to have it. Uh, David, thanks for your time today. Well, I, I really appreciate you having me. And listen, we could still be talking about Star Wars action figures. So, uh, you know, appreciate you having me on. And um, it was such an amazing decade. And I think uh, the nostalgia of In Search of Tomorrow really captures uh, not only the sci-fi uh, output of the era, but for people who just love those movies in general, you know, a lot of people say, oh, sci-fi, yeah, it's not really my thing. But then when you think about the movies of the 80s and you think about Ghostbusters, you think about E.T., you think about Back to the Future, you think about Weird Science, 
you know, Earth Girls Are Easy, whatever, you know, even Mad Max and Road Warrior, you think, well, wait a minute, it's not all just sort of sci-fi, techie, aliens, something. It's a little different. There's a feel. There's a feel when you watch these films that takes you back. And if anyone's listening to your podcast now, it's because they love and miss the 80s. And this captures a whole lot more than just the movies listed into it. Wow, it was a fun chat. Uh, funny thing is that uh, David and I went on to talk for about another 20 minutes about the 80s after we wrapped up the interview. One of us. One of us. One of us. I'd love to get some photos of his home office. Apparently, it's it's even more... 80s and geekish than than our offices are maybe we should put them up against retro dj travis bell <laughs> that'd be fun uh we're gonna put links in the show notes uh but just remember you have until march 27th to secure a copy of the film <clears throat> go to 80s sci-fi doc.com for more information you can also see the trailer for it on youtube that alone will sell you but steve do you know where to go for even more info on the 80s the, the seggies Hey, it's time for Stuck in the Arcade. We're going to play a clip of a sound effect or maybe a little music from a video game that you might have encountered in an arcade in the 80s. And you're going to tell us what it's from. It's pretty self-explanatory. All the way back from episode 620, here was the the odd sound. That's Missile yeah. Command. I think that's three haircuts ago for me. <laughs> we've really fallen off on doing the seconds. We've now that now that the cruise is over, we promise it'll it will do more regularly. We're but, we're gonna return to our more regularly scheduled programming and stuff. <laughs> I prom I promise. Uh, anyway, uh, we had a fair number of people who got this one right. Missile Command. Did you play Missile Command back then? I, I loved did. Missile Command. I loved Missile Command. I had it. I had the. I loved the arcade version, but I also had it on my Atari uh, twenty six hundred. The twenty six hundred, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a actually. There's an an iPhone app for it now too. It's oh. like Missile Command Reloaded, and it's it's the perfect little. I just want to do something non work for five minutes. Game on your phone. My my phone is slowly getting full of all the iPhone versions of all the eighties arcade games. There's there's like a variation of Galaga that's on there. Mm. Where you don't actually have to fire your your air, your ship is always firing, so all you have to do is move it around. They just slide them around. I yeah. like it. It's fun. Anyway, uh, take some time, take a deep breath, and read some of the winners. Okay, our winners this week include Charlie Brown in Vegas, John Clexton, Cliff from somewhere north of Detroit, John from L.A. Center, John from L.A. Center. Why is he in there twice? Carlos M. Hernandez, Brian with an E in Boulder, East Coast Alex, Todd in Minnesota, Alan B. Jeremy, who shot JR Rod One, New Wave Todd, Chris B. Critter, Colin Hall, Jay Squires, Mailman Jeff in Jacksonville, Tom Corn in Austria, Kianov from Midmo, Lido in Austin, Scott in Scott in Kansas, Kevin Serving Wench, Dan Newcomb, Chuck the Whiskey Moose, Bill with one L, Donnie Gettle, Hunter Ruff, and Gene and Hollister. Did you save enough energy to spin the wheel? I think I can do it. Are you ready? Let's find out who gets the postal friendly bottle opener. Postal friendly bottle opener. Here it comes.
And it looks like it's going to land on Chuck the Whiskey Boost. Excellent. Chuck, hmm. email us your postal address and we will send you the what, Brad? A postal friendly bottle opener. We gave some a we gave some away on the cruise. It was we did. They were well received. We were awesome about that. They're small, <laughs> you know. They they pack light. Um, Chuck the whiskey moose. I just need to know: is that a moose that drinks whiskey, a moose that's made of whiskey, or whiskey made from mooses? I'm hoping it's one of the first couple. Uh, me too, because the last one sounds absolutely vile. <laughs> In the meantime, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery arcade clip. If you know it, email us at podcast at sit80s.com. Oh, it just feels like it's all coming back to me. Oh, wow. It's beautiful. Along with dinner, for that matter. And uh, tune in soon to find out if you're a winner. We'll be right back after this commercial break. What gives Slice the extra kick? Juice. We got the juice. We got the blast. We got the taste that no one has. We got the juice. We got the twist. We got what's right and serving up with this. 10% fruit juices. We got the juice. We got the burst. Slice, slice. We turn the juice to cool your thirst. So nice. We got the juice. Mandarin orange, too. Slice, slice. And we're back. We got a few minutes left. I thought, hey, let's tell people what the cruise was like this year. <laughs> yeah, let's give you the highlights, the lowlights, and the no lights. <laughs> so it was set, it was seven days. It was out of Port Canaveral. Port Canaveral's right uh, off the coast of Florida near Orlando. First time we ever sailed out of there. Uh, I think my favorite two moments, uh, Dave Schultz, the keyboard player from Berlin, always hosts a all-star music jam. It used to be a secret. It used to be like on the down low. and. People loved it so much they started. They put it in the program this year. Yeah, so everyone showed up. It was standing room only. Well, I'll tell you, I wasn't coming. I was on my way to bed, and I happened to go by DJ Retro DJ Travis Bell was just finishing up a set, and he's like, "Where are you going?" I said, "I'm going to bed. It's like twelve thirty. He's like, "No, you're not. You're going in there." I don't think I am. He's like, "Yes, you are." I'm like, "Okay, I'll check it out." I'm really glad he talked me into it. Yeah. So we're in there. We're sitting down. Uh, and then John Easdale from Drama Rama who was our guest at Trivia earlier that week, shows up and sits down at our table for a while. That was fun. Yeah, that was great. Chatting with him is very cool. The uh, the only other the, other, the other highlight I have to talk about and gush about happened on the last day when we had Paul Young as our oh guest for gosh. Trivia. Couldn't be a nicer guy. What a nice guy. I know. What a nice guy. I'm going to try to get him on the podcast soon. Yeah, we should do that. He was really quite engaging. And he was telling us some stuff backstage that I said, you know, we got to figure out how to work that into the pattern for the the trivia and it just didn't fit so there's some stuff to talk to him about like yeah. the the uh the band he's working with now and just like he's doing some cool stuff yeah google the uh, alpacaminos that's his tex-mex band that he's working with now it's his real passion and it's there's something else you can find them on spotify I think they're on youtube as well but definitely check them on spotify uh what about you what were your highlights uh musically i have to tell you I'm, and i'll hit these quick uh, we talked about drama rama we saw them the first their first set and they just killed it they sounded so good they had so much energy john easdale is just stalking the stage like a caged animal i know that's a bit of a cliche but it's a cliche because people do it um, so that was really cool to see them i mean they're a band look people know a couple of their songs but everybody in the everybody in the arena whatever everyone in the hall was just so 
everyone was just so focused on what they were doing, the way they were delivering it and the way that they were performing was just really engaging. Uh, I had no real expectations for the human league and they came out and just blew us away. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the last time we saw them was at the Hollywood bowl and they just didn't, they, it wasn't a great set from them. They did a lot of their new stuff and that wasn't really what the, the nostalgia crowd was there to hear, but I think they, they took a list. They took a, uh, I think they learned their lesson because rather than standing behind their synthesizers, like uh, keyboard robots, you know, they moved around the stage and Phil Oki was doing his thing and just, he sounded great. His voice as strong as ever. And the, the stage presence was top notch. They were fantastic. Um, very quickly, Sugar Hill Gang was a revelation. I, again, I had no expectations for them, but you walk into the venue where they're playing and the roof is coming off the boat. I mean, they just had the entire place on their feet, jumping, shouting along. Just the energy in there was incredible. I agree. I was there. Apache is, <laughs> is something else to see live. Oh my gosh. Those guys just brought it. And they were on stage with half of the acts on the boat too. They just kept showing up at other sets and doing stuff. It was great. It was yeah. really cool to see them. It's cool to see the musicians playing with each other. And I mean that musically. I didn't see anything untoward folks. <laughs> Leave it to you to twist it in some weird direction. Well, it, as it came out, I'm like, oh, that's a that's what she said moment. Let's fix yeah. that. So if you're curious about the 2023 cruise, we'll just give you the quick 411 on that. It'll be March 3rd through 10th on the Royal Caribbean Navigator of the Seas. It'll be sailing- <laughs> Sound effect never gets old. And you keep getting better at it. Oh, it's because I keep hearing more ship horns, so I have more to draw on. <laughs> yeah. It's sailing out of uh, Los Angeles for the first time, so that'll be unique. Yes. Um, that also means new ports of call, so Ensenada, Cabo San Lucas, Puerto Vallarta, basically all the love boat destinations. Or as we say out here on West Coast, Best Coast, Ensenada. What I say? You, you gave it a little extra flair, which I'm not going to say is wrong, but that's just not how we say it. <laughs> oh, geez. I won't be able to sleep tonight. I didn't say Ensenada the same way what, that the people... Uh, what the heck was that? You did it again. My ears hurt. It's the it's an Enye. There's an Enye on the N. Ensenada. Oh, okay. Enye. It, I, I'm I'm not saying that the way that people in LA pronounce it is correct. I'm just saying that's how they do it. Okay. Did okay. you not take Spanish growing up? No, get this. In Western Oklahoma, what language did my crappy high school offer? French. Uh, French, yeah. That's... Great. That's going to be helpful. Yeah, so now I know the, the official language of the Olympics. See how far that's gotten me in life. <laughs> Ugh. Okay, so anyway, we're, anyway. We're, hiding, we're hiding the really good stuff. Here is the lineup. Actually, I'm going to let Brad... Let me list. let Brad I love do reading it. lists. Read okay, I'm list. going to do, do this backwards from, uh, you know, so we finish with the headliners. Here we go. XTC, China Crisis, Autograph, John Parr, Midyear, Cutting Crew, Vixen, The Smithereens with guest vocalist Marshall Crenshaw, Jody Watley, Living Color, Howard Jones, Morris Day in the Time, Kim Wilde, The Church, Brett Michaels, and I'm all tingly. It's Devo. I'm sorry. That's a great lineup. There's something for everybody there. By the way, if you're, if you're wondering XTC, that, does that sound odd? Because that band broke up a while ago. It's technically EXTC, and it's the drummer from the band along with other musicians. And they'll get together and they'll play all the XTC tunes. So 
And Jesse's girl will be there, the the ultimate yeah. 80s tribute band. So so here let's 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 take a quick chance to um give this list, give this roster um the stuck in the 80s curse because every time I say I'm really looking forward to seeing a band, they pull out. So who are you really looking forward to seeing on this list? Give me one uh, or two acts. The church. Uh Howard Jones. I've now I've seen Howard Jones a couple of times. But it's been a while. So let's say the church, Howard Jones. The smithereens are a little curious. I definitely want to see Midgeor, even though I've seen him before. Definitely want to see John Parr since we had that great interview with him. Since he's your buddy. Right. That those are the ones I'm I'm most looking forward to. What about you? Uh the church for sure. I love the album Starfish. It is so good top to bottom. Uh let's see the smithereens. I'm more curious, I guess, than excited. Like I want to see what they do. Um, I will tell you the one that jumps off the list at me though is Jody Watley. I'm really interested to see her set. And I mean, of course I'm excited to see Devo. Duh, come on, give me a break. But <laughs> there's always one too. There's always one artist every single cruise that exceeds everybody's expectations. And I'm trying to think who would it have been for this last one? It was either Drama Raba or Sugar Hill Gang for this last I, one. It could have been Living Color too, because they kind of snuck on the boat at the last minute. They were the they were the ready five band. And in case someone pulled out and nobody pulled out, but since they were already under contract, they were like, well, why don't you guys come on? We'll find some slots for you. And they, they played a couple sets and people were really excited to see them. Yeah. China crisis has the ability to surprise some people. Um, curious about XTC. Very excited, by the way, about Kim Wilde. I mean, she never tours the U S yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, we're glad to be home. We're glad to be podcasting. We can't wait to watch the, uh, the final remaining hour of the uh, documentary in search of tomorrow. It's an amazing documentary. And like I said, you'd be doing yourself a huge favor. If you check it out, it's just a, a magnificent project. If you're into uh, that sort of thing, which, which Brad and I kind of are just a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, but until we talk again, Brad and I will be here hopelessly stuck in the eighties. Stuck in the eighties is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the eighties podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music, and thanks for listening.